So this is the best advice that my dad ever gave me. If you play too close to the edge or if you walk too close to the edge and he was in the garage, like on his tippy toes, you know, telling me this, then you're going to fall off. There's a gray area right by the edge. And if you go to that gray area, then eventually you're going to fall off. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode number three. I'm your host, Clifford Fuel. This podcast is intended for those who are willing to adapt and thrive. Whatever you may have been doing for years or even decades is no longer working for you, if it ever did, and you are looking to do something different to achieve an outcome for you and yours that is happier, healthier, and liberating. In short, you want to stay free forever. My guest today is someone who embodies that goal and who speaks really clearly about how she is working to achieve it. 41-year-old Kimberly Smith of Casper, Wyoming, was born in Rock Springs and reared with a younger brother in the city of Green River, population 12,000. Kimberly's mom worked for the local school district as a data management supervisor, and her dad worked in the mining industry in surface production and as a maintenance supervisor. When I met Kimberly a year ago, she had been assigned to my cognitive awareness Zoom class by her federal probation officer after having served a sentence in federal prison on drug possession and trafficking convictions. I was impressed immediately with her ability to speak candidly, quote unquote, from an eye space, as the new age expression goes. I noticed that when Kimberly spoke, all of the other students would fall silent and really listen to what she had to say. Today, we get our first chance to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation an opportunity for which I'm really grateful. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Kimberly Smith. Uh, thanks, Cliff. I'm really excited to be here. I just wanted to say thank you for this opportunity. It's meant a lot to me, and I, I know that it's meant a lot to the other group members. Thanks again for following up and exploring uncharted territory. You're very welcome. It's my privilege. When we talk in a group setting, we rarely have an opportunity to get too deep into what people do or what drives them, what makes them tick. So I'm curious, what is it you do for a living? I'm actually a contractor. I work for a contractor in construction. What's a typical day like? I show up at the shop, meet with my boss, load up the truck with all the equipment that we're going to need for the day, and then head to the job site. I was doing drywall and texture painting, but now uh, I was assigned to a bathroom remodel. So got to tear everything out, run new plumbing. I did the electrical work today. Earlier, you let me know that when you were growing up, two people you looked up to were your mom and Amelia Earhart. What do your mom and Amelia Earhart have in common, if anything? Oh, I think their steadiness their strength and courage and their independence, I guess. What else about your mom caused her to be a role model for you? I think her strength, really, out of all the things I've seen her go through, like she doesn't miss a step and it's awesome. She's been so confident for my entire life and mm. self-esteem is really, it's hard to hold on to sometimes. And she doesn't doubt herself. And like, I appreciate that so much about her. Sorry. No, this is one of the things I like about you. You come from the heart and I, I really appreciate that. Tell me about your dad. He was very kind and 
very intelligent. Both of my parents are like so smart. He was creative too. I'm definitely a lot like my dad was. He was always soft-spoken. He was definitely the easier parent of the two as far as like <laughs> anything really. My mom was very by the book and structured and she was hard, but good. My dad was easy. My dad passed away a couple of years ago. Alcoholism, so. That's tough. How are you doing with it? I'm good. I was in treatment when it happened, when I was incarcerated. And so I got a process in a more supportive environment than like the rest of my family did. They saw how things got bad. Things got at the end where I wasn't firsthand with that. The process that I went through grieving my father was a lot more positive than the rest of my family. That's interesting. You're incarcerated, but the support you had at that time made it easier to grieve the loss of your father. Whereas a lot of people, when they lose a parent while they're incarcerated, and I've seen this happen many times, it's triply devastating. Yeah, absolutely. And prior to it happening, I was kind of working on boundaries. And some of the best advice I got was riding an emotional roller coaster with an addict doesn't do you any good, me any good. That I could still love my father and not ride his up and downs of the addiction with him. One of the most hardest boundaries that I ever had to make was to not constantly call and check up or get my hopes up and then get my hopes let down. Knowing that he was in active addiction and just being able to separate myself to protect my emotional health, it was very hard. And I hadn't talked to my dad for, I don't know, two and a half or three months uh, before he passed away. And it had to be that way. That's a very grounded outlook. You mentioned that he'd passed while you were incarcerated. Was that your first time ever being incarcerated? No, that was actually my second term. Okay. Can you take us through your first? The first time I was charged with the same things, convicted of the same things. I did 18 months on that sentence. It was federal also. It was, I think, instigated by depression both times. I had a Division One volleyball scholarship, and my scholarship didn't get renewed, and I had had an ankle injury. We had a new coach, and they said anybody without game statistics wasn't getting renewed, and I just I got real depressed because I kind of associated who I was to being an athlete, and I didn't handle the failure so well. Let's see. That was 19 years old. And I didn't get arrested until I was 26, but it was like that moment, that's when the turn happened for me, like depression set in and I, yeah, I started using, I started drinking like, and then drugs and I had never done any of that before that. So it was very out of character. How did your friend group change over that period? Oh, a, a ton. Because I had a really close-knit group when I was in high school. And when we went to college, we all went to very different places. I didn't really fit in with the girls on my team. I didn't feel like, I just kind of felt like I was the only one who didn't fit in. But maybe I was just overthinking it. So I, did, I went from like a lot of friends to no friends. And once you started drinking and using, did your friend group change even further? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The quality of friend changed. Did you notice it at the time? Were you aware of it? Oh, no, no. Was anyone else aware of it? And did they mention it to you? My mom. <laughs> yeah, she absolutely did. Um, my dad. Um, but he, he wasn't as outspoken like that. He let me walk my road. But as far as anybody in my circle, no, absolutely not. And at that point, your mom, although you looked up to her, her opinion of your friend group 
especially when you're handling your depression by drinking and using, doesn't quite count for as much, does it? No, you know, and I think it was um, her opinion of me. You know, I didn't want to be a disappointment to the people that I cared about. And I think that's what, you know, the strength lies in addiction is like the secret, you know. I think everybody handles it different, but um, I lost a lot of who I was trying to hide what I was doing, you know. Of course, eventually you couldn't hide it. How did your first arrest go down? They showed up at my house. They raided me. That was the first time I'd ever been arrested or in jail or anything. I didn't even have a traffic ticket. Wow. So, and briefly, what had you been up to that got them to show up? Oh, I, I was selling a significant amount of methamphetamine. Using as well as selling or just selling? Oh, yeah. Using every day. So the first stretch of 18 months in prison, what effect did it have on you? Oh, it had a, a major effect. I had a mandatory minimum of 10 years, but I qualified for the safety valve because I didn't have any prior offenses of any kind, like I said. So the judge told me, I want to see what you do with your first year and a half in prison, and I'll give you your reduction at that point. So, I mean, I did everything. I took college classes. I took <laughs> country line dancing and <laughs> like any any class that I could possibly get into. And I must have showed up for court with like stack of certificates. But it really uh, gave me a chance to like find out who I was because I I had mentioned like if I wasn't an athlete, who was I? You know. And after that moment, it was an addict. So I was 28 then. So for the first time as an adult, I got to do things and experience them just me. That's the first time I started to think about what things I might like in a career or mm -hmm. things I wanted to study or hobbies I wanted to have. It was cool meeting me for the first time. I like the way you put that. Cool meeting me for the first time. It happened in prison. What prison was that? Uh, it was the Phoenix prison camp. It was minimum security in Arizona. So good. The judge was true to his word. He mm -hmm. saw your programming and set you free at 29, 30, yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Originally, I had gone back to school. I had finished my degree. And while well, I was going to go to the University of Utah to join their psychology research program. And like 15 days before I moved down there, I got a call for a job opportunity at the mines and I decided to stay. I went to work at the mines. And so I worked in the lab for two years and then I was promoted to production foreman from one of the food grade plants. So that was a, a huge thing. So I did that. For a couple of years, I had bought a house. Basically, my life was work, though. I was definitely obsessed with it, and it came with its challenges as well. I was the only female foreman they had had at the time. They had one other one that had worked there previously, but we were in different plants. So it was, I was the first female in my plant. And there's just a culture that is here. It's challenging being a female in a male-dominated occupation. Sexist, boorish behavior, perhaps? um some yeah yeah were you good at deflecting it um no I never did get good at it I didn't I would just try harder and things would get worse so hmm. yeah you persevered I did but at the expense of myself when I left there I was a walking shell of a human being wow in retrospect you might have done better going off to school in Utah absolutely yeah but again <laughs> 
there's always a life lesson in something, you know? So I, I learned my lessons there too. What did you learn? My big takeaway after all of that is grief that I always thought that for death of a person or a pet, but I didn't realize the impact that when there are other things in life, we have to grieve and say goodbye to too. For me, mine was that job. If I could picture my dream job, that was it. It let me think bigger, you know, and it challenged me a lot. And I really liked that. And I really liked working with people. And I liked the safety. I liked a lot of different parts. And when I left, I just, I didn't understand why it went so horribly wrong. And I just kept asking why and why and why. And I think your first podcast, Sarah mentioned acceptance. And that was huge for me. When I finally accepted that it happened and things were just this way now, that things were different. And I accepted that and was able to grieve the loss. <laughs> it gave me this aha, big moment of duh. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> Life, yeah. I can understand grieving that. Did that somehow play into your eventually getting arrested and charged and convicted with the same possession? Oh, yeah. So what happened there? Yeah, I just picked up and started using and didn't quit until I went to prison. Did you sell it in order to basically support your own habit? The first time I was selling for the money, the second time I was selling for the friendships I thought that I was getting. I couldn't love myself, so I just wanted to be around people. How, how are you arrested the second time? I was leaving a friend's house and they basically raided me in the driveway. So same judge, different judge? Different judge, yep. And you were sentenced to how long the second time? 78 months. It ended up being three and a half. I got time off for doing the drug program. How was your second stint in federal prison different from your first? I didn't punish myself like I did the first time. The first time I took, I would call it my mom approach. I didn't buy commissary. I only studied all the time, constantly. Day in, day out, I would work and then study. Weekends, no fun. There was no fun because I was there to learn something and to do something different. And so I had to get my life in check the first time. Okay. Second time, same. I still took classes. I got certifications, but I learned to provide self-care and to not be so rigid where I had an extreme sense of fear of failure. There were some other things that I needed to work on personally to give me more skills because you can't have one superior skill and then the rest of your life skills just be subpar because it doesn't work that way. So I learned to balance them all out and again, learn how to take care of me because I usually come last. Do you think the self-esteem deficit that you experienced comes from the being the adult child of an alcoholic? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. I absolutely do. Have you found other people to sort of share experiences with? Yeah, I have. I don't think I've got into the in-depth conversations with maybe the right people to get enough processing time, I guess you would say, to really connect with somebody about that. But they're out there for sure. Because I've brought that up a couple times to different people. That that's where I think it has stemmed from. Because the roles of an alcoholic family, they're very clear. And I can relate 100% to them. I was the family hero for us. Talk more about that family hero. As I've experienced it, the family hero's role is to be perfect. The perfect one that we present to the world that everything is okay. 
that we are a normal family, that we're functioning just great, that we don't have any problems going on because look at how good we are. I played sports and got good grades and was in the paper every week. You know, I have a stack of newspapers, but it was all protecting this thing that we had at home that nobody ever talked about. Nobody said, don't talk about this in public. You just knew not to, you know, and I think it's that unspoken thing that's not talked about, like a emptiness that you protect forever at the sacrifice of self, knowing self respecting self. What's an example, Kimberly, of something that you knew not to talk about? My dad's drinking. He didn't drink always. He was definitely a binge drinker, but for longer periods. He'd be sober for years and then, I don't know, something would happen, you know, and he would start drinking again and it would be bad until he would go to treatment and then it would be over for a couple more years. But that's what we never talked about. I remember my best friend, she was my best friend, I don't know, from sixth grade until we graduated. And as an adult, she had made the comment to me that even growing up in high school and stuff, like she didn't realize my dad had a drinking problem. And it's because we hit it. If he was drinking, we didn't have friends over. We would make excuses or just, we, we hit it and we hit it well. Yeah. Thank you for that. So the second stint in prison for mm -hmm. which you are now still on probation, yes? Yes. How's it going? How's probation treating you? Going good. I should be done in June, so that's exciting. I'm still on level three, so I still do the UAs and house checks. Fair to say you're still clean and sober? Oh, yeah. For how long now? Over a year. Is it difficult? It's not today. It's difficult when old patterns begin to arise. But as long as I'm aware of myself and my choices and my interactions with people, I don't have to think about it as much. It's nice to know that the newness and the work that it takes, like it, it does get easier, but I don't think it's ever good just to let it go and just ride on autopilot, you know? And I think I had mentioned that before when you had said that you were going to do these follow-up groups, the fact that you reach out and keep in touch and you say, Hey, we have a group, or would you like to do the podcast? Like I'm absolutely interested because I think it's important to keep a connection with it. Very good. I was talking to a couple of students in my most recent Zoom COG awareness class, and they were saying that it's tough sometimes to deal with a probation officer. Maybe they don't get the attaboys that they feel they need or want or deserve. And you've had a couple of stints on probation. Do you have any advice or tips for people on probation as to how to navigate it as successfully as you have? I haven't always been successful. I think what keeps me moving forward and in a positive growth mind perspective is accountability. When I make a mistake or do something or I, you know, even say something that hurts somebody's feelings, being able to take ownership and try to make amends so that you don't have, so that I don't have a bunch of things that pile up on me. That works the best. And just, just like all of the lessons I've learned, you know. Um, amends to others and amends to self. If you were to counsel your 19-year-old self today, knowing what you know now, knowing how you handled depression then, what uh, advice would you give to younger Kimberly? Uh, <laughs> that question is so loaded. It's been asked to me before, and it was another aha moment in my life. And I think it's still the same today, and it's to trust myself. 
really I can be very confident in like a thought or belief that I have but I don't give it the weight that I probably should and so today like branching out into this new career path and uh, it was kind of a spur of the moment move I just kind of threw caution to the wind and came after it but it's been good and just trusting myself to not let things stand in the way of me deciding you know what makes me happy and you're off probation in june where do you see yourself in the next few years i want to be steady with my dream i don't want to dream something that might completely change so right now i don't know um i'm enjoying the time with my mom and just being me and i want to get a dog so (laughs) (laughs) what haven't i asked you or haven't we talked about that you think that you thought maybe we might or that uh, would be important for folks to know about you and your journey? I don't think I have any burning desires left. I mean, I, I think you covered a lot of things. I I mean, you definitely uh, impacted me because I, I cried the whole time, but... <laughs> And if it's okay with you, I'd like to go to the next phase of the Stay Free Forever podcast. And let's share a couple of quotes or passages that we have. Who would you like to go first? I'll go first. I have this thing hanging in my desk area. So believe in yourself and all that you are. Know that there is something inside you that is greater than any obstacle. Wonderful. What's a recent obstacle that you've proved greater than? I think heartbreak. I had a big one last year. It was so very hard. And today, like all the dreams that I had that I thought um, were our dreams, like I'm still doing them. And I'm so proud, you know, to be able to know that I don't have to give up everything when I lose something. Um, When I got out of prison, one of my goals, and I had it up on the fridge, was to do a 5k and so my mom and I did one two weeks ago yeah it was cool and she does not do things like that so the fact that we did it was super cool and it was her idea so it was awesome and just to know that you know it doesn't matter not to give up on my dreams you know like life happens and things get delayed but it's never too late that's wonderful thank you for that the passage I'm going to read I was prompted by something that you told me earlier when I asked you who did you look up to you said my mom and I'd been reading this book called The Age of Opportunity uh, by Lawrence Steinberg and it's uh, he's an expert in adolescence and so Lawrence Steinberg attempts to define adulthood and I, I, I like this part in particular I'd like to get your thoughts on it we tend to use some sort of social indicator to draw the line between adolescence and adulthood like attaining the age of legal majority, starting a full-time job, or moving out of one's parents' home. Reasonable people may disagree about which social indicator makes the most sense, but they would probably agree that a cultural marker of adulthood makes more sense than a biological one. This is why experts define adolescence as beginning in biology and ending in culture. Ah, that's really impactful. Okay, so in high school my mom and I did not have the greatest relationship we fought a lot and when I went to prison my relationship with my mother 
got so much better. And I think because I was growing up and I was learning who I, I got to meet me, like I said. Um, and when I got out, she had made the comment to me, you're my best friend. And I like that you can be my best friend because you used to be my daughter. But now that you're, you've matured, you've grown up, you get to be my friend. That is beautiful. Yeah. I applaud your mom for that statement. I think that's really cool. Let the record show you're beaming. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of got these two backwards, but it doesn't matter. It's my podcast. I can do whatever I want. We're going to end yeah. um, this conversation <laughs> on a passage taken from a workbook. I'm always fully intending to use a workbook that is randomly chosen. But I, I really like <laughs> your workbook so much. <laughs> and that, uh, I want to- I want to handwriting looks familiar. Yeah, I want to go to a past, something that you wrote. The question was on your course evaluation. What do you plan to do differently in your life mm -hmm. that will enable you to prevent this situation from happening again? I plan to engage daily on self-care and self-esteem maintenance. My daily inventories help me to identify when I am struggling with negative thoughts and emotions. Intentional and purposeful correction on these issues as they arise keep me moving further away from the gray areas where a lapse into the criminal lifestyle would be possible. My goals are to live a life that brings peace and a heart that can give that to others. That's just lovely. Yeah. Do you sometimes feel that the criminal lifestyle is still a possibility? Oh, I believe it will always be a possibility. Like I said, it's not safe to get a whole bunch of recovery tools and then forget to use them daily. When you have to change things, it's everything. But that everything, I mean, it, it becomes just a different way. But for me, it's a very slippery slope because old habits die very hard and new habits are very hard to make. So if I'm not keeping up on it, it's easier for my brain, my body and everything to go into robot mode and go back to the, the easy way, the unconscious way. So this is the best advice that my dad ever gave me. If you play too close to the edge or if you walk too close to the edge and he was in the garage, like on his tippy toes, you know, telling me this, then you're going to fall off. There's a gray area right by the edge and if you go to that gray area then eventually you're going to fall off so don't test the waters and don't test the gray area and just back up he's right well done thank you dad kimberly the hour flies by thank you so much for just being willing to put it out there i know it's going to be helpful to people who are listening as i tell all my students I never come away from a class or a session or, or anything without learning more than I ever relay. So it's a privilege to know you. Yes. Well, thank you. And thank you again for this opportunity. I will be listening in. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, 
owner of Stay Free Forever, LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email clifford at stayfreeforever.com.